Our scripture reading today is Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thank you, Joey, and thank you so much, Camille, for leading. Camille uh, was the worship leader up at Redemption Flagstaff, and she's down now in the valley, and she'll be leading and playing with us. Um off and on over this next year at least. So I'm just so thankful that there's so many incredibly talented people within Redemption Church that can help us with that. Well, uh, happy Father's Day. Way to go. You did it. You made it. You survived. Good job. Um, No, this is actually, uh, um, so my birthday was yesterday and today is Father's Day. So I like to just dub this like my weekend. So uh, thank you guys for coming to my party. Um, I appreciate that. Uh, we will be celebrating. Um, but no, but happy Father's Day. That has nothing to do with the sermon. I just wanted to say that to you guys. Um, today we are going to be continuing in our series as we look through the Psalms. Uh, we're obviously not going to talk about all 150 Psalms, but we have chosen a few key Psalms to preach about and to talk about to focus on throughout the summer. I'm really excited about this because I think this is a great opportunity for us to just learn the different ways that the people of God have prayed, learn the different ways that the people of God have worshipped, some of the major themes that kind of 
uh, wrap up and summarize the Bible. Um, and today's theme is one of my favorite themes uh, that you see in the Old Testament. It hinges on one of the most important words that I think is in the Hebrew Old Testament. It's the word chesed. Um, it, 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 it's translated in our Bibles as steadfast love. And we see it right there in the first verse. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And I love that we're talking about this today because this is the love that we all need. This is the love that we all long for. This is the real love. This is the one that doesn't quit. This is the love that doesn't kick us out. This is the love that doesn't have strings attached to it. This is the real deep love of God that we need, that we all long for, whether we know it or not. And, it's gonna, and this talks about how we receive it, how we get it. Um, I love uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones in her uh, children's storybook Bible, I think is, probably gives the best English definition of this word chesed. And that's that it's God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love. That's the chesed. That is the steadfast love of God. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love. And if there's nothing else that you get this morning, I want you to know that that is the love that God has for you. That is the love. When we talk about God's love for you, it's that kind of love. It's not the love that quits on you. It's not the love that stops. It's not the love that breaks promises. It's not the love that requires all these things for it to still happen. It's that kind of love. It's the love that never stops, never gives up. It's always and forever. It will never go away. That's the kind of love that we have from God. And if there's nothing else that you hear, I want you to hear that today. That's the love that we talk about when we talk about the love of God. If, we can, if I can sum up this psalm in one statement, and we'll be unpacking this throughout the rest of the sermon, but I want to put this up there. It is that the steadfast love of God is most powerfully and perfectly expressed in the work of Jesus the great rescuer. The steadfast love, that never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love of God is most powerfully and perfectly expressed in the work of Jesus, the great rescuer. We're going to be talking about the great salvation that comes from Jesus in this psalm. And, but, but it's going to take us some work to get there. See, we looked at Psalm 1 and 2 last week, uh, the last few weeks, and Psalm 1 and 2, I think, is a great, like, intro to the Psalms because it sets out, I think, one of the biggest themes that, throughout the whole Bible, and that's that God is the king. There is no other king but God. And if you are with him, you will have salvation, you will have refuge, you will have safety. And if you are against him, you will be destroyed. It puts it that clearly, that succinctly in Psalm 1 and 2. What I love about Psalm 118 is that it introduces another very, very big theme of the Bible. It introduces something that, that carries throughout all the way from the very beginning of the story all the way to the end. And that is that God is not only the king, but he, he is the rescuer. God is the one who rescues. God is the one who saves. This is a, this is a psalm that uh, really connects the Old Testament with the New. This is part of what's called the Egyptian Hallel. The, starting, in verse, uh, starting in Psalm 113, these are all reflections on God's uh, deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Um, it harkens back to when uh, God came through Moses to rescue the people of Israel out of Egypt. 
brings them out of the land through the ten plagues, brings them across the Red Sea by parting the Red Sea and then destroying the Egyptians that were following them. So it uses that template to talk about God's salvation. This is a psalm that kind of connects the Passover with the, with the passion. Okay, because not only does it look back, but this is a psalm that looks forward. It says, in the same way God saved us then, there's coming a day when God will save us again for good. When God will save us and keep us saved. And, and there will be nothing else that can, that can take us away from it. This is a psalm that kind of connects the two. Um, and it was a psalm written probably around the time of the exile. Now, there was probably bits and phrases of this psalm that was kind of sung and, and written throughout most of Israel's existence, but this is right around the time of the exile. This is right around the time when, and we don't know exactly when this was written, but this is generally kind of known to be a psalm that happened right around the time of the exile, right after the exile. The exile was a time in, in Israel's life, in Israel's history, where after so many times of God sending prophets to say, just repent, just repent and turn to me and I'll keep you safe. They didn't over and over and over again. So he said, I'm going to discipline you. And so he brings the Babylonians in, takes the nation out of Israel, brings them into Babylon and punishes them there. He ultimately does return them and it's in this return that this psalm was most likely written. When they're reflecting back over and over again and say, okay, you know what? We need to understand that the steadfast love of God comes from God that salvation comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from anything else. And then it anticipates and looks forward to a day when the Messiah would come and save them for good. So that's the psalm that we're talking about. This is about the steadfast love of God. Steadfast love of God manifests in the way he saves and redeems his people. It is about his never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever, forever love. And as we look through this, I think there's... there's there's three, uh, three important themes that we need to see. And the first is that we all need a rescuer. We all need a rescuer. Starting in verse 5, uh, it says, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. If you go down to verse 10, it says, All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. So one of the things the psalmist reflects upon is the fact that they need somebody to rescue them, that they have been oppressed. There is a history of oppression in their lives. You know, I, I, I love the way that this is described. I love the metaphors that they use in verse 11, or in verse 12. It surrounded me like a swarm of bees. That's how much the evil and the oppression came around them. Surrounded them like fire amongst thorns. So my, my little brother is a Phoenix firefighter, and uh, during college he worked at, um, up in Flagstaff and was a wildfire uh, on the wildfire crew up there. And he... Um, and so I was with him this last week. I was preparing for the sermon, knew this metaphor, and just asked him, hey, what's it like to be surrounded by fire? This is a guy who has actually chose to have a job where he gets regularly surrounded by fire. So I asked him what that was like, and he describes it. Um, he says, well, frankly, it's one of the most scariest things that you can experience, especially if you don't know kind of what you're doing in the midst of it. 
It says the first thing you feel as fire kind of comes around you is just, you're just hot. You're burning, uh, which seems to make sense, but it's like, I mean, he's in protective gear. He's in all this stuff. And he's like, you just feel it in your bones. You feel it deep down inside of you. You feel like your insides are just, just heating up to a point where you can't handle it. He says you, you get to the point where you're actually numb. It's like you, typically when you're in the middle of fighting a fire, you're numb to it because it's that overwhelming. He says, and then there's the smoke. He's like, and when you're in a wildfire situation, the smoke is coming at you and you just have to kind of hold your breath and wait for that gust of fresh air to come in. And you take the breath and then you hold it again, not really knowing when the next gust of wind's going to come through. And then he said that the next thing you'll notice is you would expect in a fire for it to be really bright. You'd expect it to be very light, but it's not. It's darkness. You're covered in complete darkness because of the smoke. You can't see the light. You can't see the trees around you. You can't see anything else around you. He says it's one of the most terrifying things that you can experience. And this is what they use to describe evil. This is what they use to describe the oppression. And guys, they're not being hyperbolic, I think, in the way that they describe evil. That is what evil is. I think we've all experienced this. Maybe we don't feel it at all times, but there are these moments when we just feel so deeply that the evil surrounding us is overwhelming, that the oppression surrounding us is overwhelming. We feel this and we know there's nothing that we can do because that's what both of these scenarios express. You can't outrun the bees. You can't outrun the fire. When it comes around you, it surrounds you, it encompasses you. Unless something saves you out of it, it will destroy you. Israel knew this all too well. I just want to give you a, a, a brief history of their oppression. It began with Egypt. They were... 500 years slaves to Egypt. They did all the dirty work. They were beaten. They were whipped. They were tossed aside. For 500 years, the nation of Israel were slaves. Then God rescued them out of it. They brought them into a new land. And under Joshua, conquered the nation of Israel. But the moment Joshua died, they turned back to idols, things like that, and were once again impressed by the Edomites, the Amalekites, the Midianites. We just went through the book of Judges, and if you remember in the book of Judges, over and over and over again, and they were oppressed. And oppressed is, I think, a, a kind way of saying it. They were killed. They were beaten. They were taken over by outside enemies. And then you get to the, to the, the kingly line, and even though David fought them off and there was peace under Solomon, that was the only time there was peace in Israel's history. For the rest of it, they were either fighting enemies or overtaken by enemies. Eventually, in the, in the 700 BCs, Assyria came and actually wiped out 11 of the nations, 11 of the tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom. He just wiped them out, gone. 200 years later, the Babylonians came, and they killed a number of the people still left. They brought most of them back into Babylon. This is a history of oppression, and it even continues beyond the psalmist. After that, it was the Greeks under Alexandria. And then it was the Romans who took them over. This is a nation that was constantly surrounded by the nations, was constantly being oppressed, was constantly being overwhelmed by the apparent evil that was surrounding them. And they recognized they needed somebody to rescue them. They recognized their deep need that apart from that, they would be overcome. Guys, we are in that same boat. If you don't believe that, you're kidding yourself. This is the reality of evil. It might not feel like war. 
or famine or anything like that. But this is the reality of evil. It is overwhelming. It will overtake you and it will destroy you without somebody that rescues you, without somebody that saves you. We are oppressed by our abuse. We are oppressed by our addiction, by poverty, by broken homes, by wayward kids. We're sometimes oppressed just by the, the kingdom that we built that we're constantly worried is going to crash in upon our, um, ourselves. The amount of stress that I know so many of us are working under, we are constantly oppressed. We are constantly overcome by evil. We all need to be rescued. Which brings me to my next point, and that's that not only do we all need to be rescued, but we all will choose somebody or something to rescue us. We all will choose somebody or something to rescue us. In verse 8 and 9, it says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. See, they have this history, but over and over and over again, instead of turning to the Lord, they turned to people. In their minds, it was either a great king or a great deliverer or something like that that would come and save them and redeem them and rescue them. That was their great hope. That was the great thing that they would constantly anticipate. That was their great rescuer. That was what they would choose. And as the psalmist says, that doesn't work. But it's something that we need to see. It was not that they just either didn't choose to be rescued or they asked God, is that they chose something to rescue them. We will all choose somebody or something to rescue us. David, and this is something that is recognized by even people that are not Christians. Uh, this is a quote by a guy named David Foster Wallace. Um, he was an author and, and a philosopher um, who was uh, a self-proclaimed agnostic. And he, and he said this in a speech um, he gave to Kenyon University. He said this, In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Um, there's a great Bob Dylan song called You're Gonna Have to Serve Somebody. And it says, you may be the ambassador to England or to France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Now, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Bob Dylan is a great theologian. Amen. Yes, thank you. Uh, well, both of these things, I think, both David Foster Wallace's statement and Bob Dylan's statement, I think, reflects the heart of this psalm. Is that somebody, some, we're going to choose something. We are aimed at something, and we need to realize this. There's never a point in our life where we are not seeing something that will redeem us, that seeing something that will rescue us, putting our ultimate hope into something. We are at all times aimed at something. Our love, our affection, our desires are always pointed at something. We will be worshiping something. We will be serving something. We will be always seeing something as a great redeemer and great rescuer in our lives. We need to know that. We need to understand that. And it will either be God or an idol. It will either be God or an idol. Anything that we see that is not God to do that to us is an idol. I want to take a moment just to talk about the way idolatry works. This has been something that's really helpful in my life. 
Um, and I think that this is something, an, an easy way of understanding how the nation of Israel and how we ourselves continually don't choose God. We need to understand the way idolatry works because it's interesting because interesting it works the same way that the gospel works. It starts, and I call this the cycle of idolatry, if you can put it up there. It starts with the recognition of brokenness. No matter what, sometimes, whether it's a shallow recognition of brokenness or kind of a deep, more existential recognition of brokenness, we see something's not right, something's not good, something's not fair. We need something to be made right. And then the idol comes along and promises to rescue you. It promises to heal you. It promises to make it better. It promises to complete you. It does that. And we say, okay, I'll try it out. And then no matter what, it fails to rescue you. I love, uh, uh, Frank will, will say this over and over again, idols never fail to fail. This is, one, this is literally the only thing you can count on from an idol, is that it will fail you. Is that it will not deliver on the promise it made to rescue you. And then what happens is a failure, there, there's a failure to rescue you, and then once again you get trapped in this recognition of brokenness. Oftentimes it's stronger then, because not only has that failed you, but it has pointed out a deeper brokenness in you. And we fall into the trap over and over and over again. It's this trap of idolatry that we find ourselves in. And I said it works the same way as the gospel, only it does not deliver the same way the gospel does because the difference is when the gospel promises to rescue you, it actually does rescue you. That's the only difference between the way idols work and the way Jesus works, is that Jesus actually keeps his word and idols can't. But that's how deceptive they are. That's how they do this. The nation of Israel kept on thinking, well, maybe just the right king can save us. Maybe the right set of circumstances, the right form of worship can save us. Maybe that God will save us. That God will redeem us. And it fails them every time. And they sink deeper and deeper into the cycle. Not only is there a cycle of idolatry, but I think we need to recognize the subtlety of idolatry. Our most powerful idols are the ones we're least aware of. Uh, David Foster Wallace, in the same... uh, in the same address that he gave to Kenyon University, uh, gave this parable. I'm so, I love this parable. It says there's these two young fish that are swimming in the bottom of the ocean. They're just swimming along one morning. And an older fish comes along, swims by them. And as he swims by, he looks over at the two young fish and says, well, good morning, you guys. How's the water? The two fish keep on swimming. They're swimming, swimming. A few minutes later, one of the fish looks over at the other with a confused look on his face and said, what in the world is water? It's supposed to be funny. It's okay. <laughs> ah, yeah. Um, he looks over and says, what's water? See, it's the thing that they're surrounded in. It's the most obvious thing that is shaping and forming every aspect of this fish's life, and they're not even aware of it because it's surrounding him. It's the most obvious. It's the most blatant. That's how subtle our idols work on us. It's the ones that are most obvious to somebody outside of us that are least obvious to us. James K. A. Smith, who is this, uh, I'm working through his book. It's a great book uh, called You Are What You Love. Um, he goes into this in his book. And it, it's a book all about the way, the way we worship shapes and forms us and how we worship them, things that we involve ourselves in forms us. He describes this event, and it seems at first that he's describing like a, a moment of going to church. He starts by this person comes and parks in this giant parking lot. Um, there's a bunch of other people. It's well lit. It looks nice. They walk in. 
a bunch of other people are walking in too. They go into the doors. They're surrounded by these images of the good life, as he calls it. People kind of laughing and having fun. They're fit, they're happy, they're good looking. You're surrounded by that. You walk in and in one moment, you're happy. You see this stuff, you're like, this is what I want. But in the same moment, you feel a little depressed. Because you're like, I don't look like that. I don't act like that. I don't feel like that. And so you walk in and you begin your ritual of worship. And he describes this in very vivid language. And what he's describing is not a church service, but the, but the habit of going to the mall on a regular basis. And it's really interesting. And when the first time I read it, I was just like cut to the core. Because it's one of those things where this, stu- this is something that has been happening to me. Where you go and inhabit these spaces. And what I didn't know is what it was doing to me. And that was the whole point of his book that these things are not neutral experiences. These are shaping us to want things that we don't have. These are shaping us to be consumers. These are shaping us in other areas to be just all, all these different types of idols. Idols don't come through our mind, but they come through our hearts. They come through the things that we inhabit, the cultures that we surround ourselves in, the water that we swim in without even realizing it. He has this great quote in there. It says, Indeed, we could be so fixated on intellectual temptations that we don't realize our hearts are being liturgically co-opted by rival empires all the while. He uses the term liturgy to describe this habitual thi- these habitual things that we go through. These, these kind of things that we th- go through without thinking about them. These forms, these habits that we do. Whether it's going to the mall or going to a football game or going to a family outing, going to college, any of these things. He calls them cultural liturgies. And these cultural liturgies do things to us. They do things to our hearts. They form us and shape us in a way that points our hearts towards something other than God. He goes on and says this, if you think of love-shaping practices as liturgies, this means that you could be worshiping other gods without even knowing it. Idolatry is subtle. It works on us without us even knowing it. I always ask the question whenever I was studying the Old Testament is why did Israel keep doing it? Israel over and over again would just fall into the same trap. They would fall in the same trap. They'd start to worship other gods, then they would be oppressed. The only thing that ever got them out of it was when they turned to God and, and God saved him. Over and over again. They have hundreds of years of history teaching them this. And I would look at that and say, why didn't they get it? Why didn't they understand it? Don't they know their history? Don't they see it? It seems so obvious. But it's because of the water they were swimming in. It's because they were swimming in a culture where it was kings that saved people. It was a polytheistic culture where to get certain things, you appease certain gods. And it co-opted their hearts without them even realizing it. To the point where I think when prophets came to them and said, hey, you're not worshiping God, they were surprised. They were surprised at it. Because they were worshiping other gods without even knowing it. And I think that that's what happens in our hearts. See, not only do we need a rescuer, but we will choose somebody or something to rescue us. And I think oftentimes we are blind to the things that we are choosing. That is why it's so important that we're here. Because the whole point of Sunday is to reorient our hearts back to God. Reorient our hearts to Christ. Because there are so many things working on our hearts to point it elsewhere. I think so many times I find myself worshiping things that will never deliver me. I so oftentimes asking things to rescue me that can never rescue me. And guys, we need to know this. We will all choose something. We will all choose somebody. There's never a neutral stance that we can take. 
with regards to worship. So we'll either worship idols or we worship the Lord. The difference is that idols will fail us and the Lord won't. Which brings me to, I think, the last point, and this is really the, the big point of the psalm. And it is that Jesus is the only one who can truly rescue you. Amen? Jesus is the only one who can truly rescue you. The overwhelming conclusion of the psalmist is that Yahweh God is the only one who truly saves. We see this as as he reflects upon the Exodus. In verses 14 through 16 of Psalm 118, he does this. He says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. That verse right there is a direct quote from Exodus 15. This is the song they sung, the song of Moses that was sung directly after them being saved through the Red Sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And verse 15 says, Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. So the psalmist is saying, it is Yahweh God who truly saves. Yet I'm going to take it a step further because we have the benefit of hindsight. It is not merely Yahweh God, not, not saying merely Yahweh God, but it is more specifically Jesus. Yahweh God in Jesus who saves us. See, unlike the psalmist, we have hindsight. We have the ability to go back through and actually see the way this plays out in the New Testament. And I'm not making this leap kind of just, just without any reason for it. It is Jesus himself who claims through this psalm that he is the Messiah. It is ultimately Jesus who defines his identity as a rescuer by means of using this psalm. See, at the time that Jesus was around, this would have been considered like, like a top hit. Like if they, if they had those, if they had like a billboard top 20 chart, this would have been like one or two on the list. They would talk about this over and over and over again. They knew this. The kids knew it. The people knew it. They would sing it over and over again. This is a constant prayer of theirs. This is constant prayer because once again, Israel found themselves oppressed. Once again, they were waiting for the same Yahweh God that saved them out of Egypt to come and save them again. And they knew that he was promised. They knew that he was coming. They knew it. They felt it. They longed for it. And Jesus, using this psalm, says to the people, I am that man. I am that rescuer. I want to read the section that Jesus quotes And then I want to talk about the place where he quotes it, just so you believe me. Starting in verse 19 of 118, he says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them, and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. There's three specific instances that Jesus refers to the psalm, or at least that the, the gospel writers refer to the psalm. Verses in John 10, 7. You can turn there if you like, otherwise it'll be up on the screen. In John 10, 7, in this section, Jesus, for the most part, is talking about himself as the good shepherd. 
which is actually a reference back to the book of Jeremiah, who kept on talking about bad shepherds and said, one day a good shepherd is going to come. So Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I'm here. But in that very uh, same teaching time, he changes the metaphor in a really weird way. And it's, it's weird if you don't know the Old Testament. It's not weird if you do, because what he's doing is directly placing himself in Psalm 118. In verse 7, he says, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door of the sheep. Not only is he the shepherd, the good shepherd that is calling a sheep, but he is the gate through which they enter. It says, open to me the gates of righteousness and the righteous shall enter through it. He's saying, I am that gate. I am that door. I am that path. I am the way through which the righteous enter the kingdom of heaven. He says it there in John 10, 7. He says it again in Mark 11, 8 through 10. This is a week before Jesus is killed in the triumphal entry. He's coming in, riding upon the back of a donkey. I'm going to pick it up in verse 8. It says, And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It wasn't like they all like got together and said, okay, guys, this is what we're going to say when Jesus gets here. They just knew the song. They all knew it and they all recognized it. They would watch him coming and they'd say, finally, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they weren't just saying that, but they were saying all of it. They were saying all of Psalm 118. They are saying, this is him. This is the great redeemer. This is the great rescuer. And if you remember, in this section, after this happens, the Pharisees were really mad at Jesus. And they weren't mad at him. He, he couldn't control what the crowd said. They were mad because Jesus didn't correct them. It's important that we know that. Jesus heard them recognizing who he was, making the claim through Psalm 118 that he was, in fact, the great Redeemer, and Jesus didn't stop them. That's what they were so mad at Jesus about. So they said, no, no, no. You hear that they're making a claim that you're God, the one that's going to come and rescue, that you are Yahweh, the one that saves. And basically by his silence is saying, I know. I know that's what they're saying about me. And if it couldn't have gotten worse, he goes on to clarify that that's exactly what he means. If you look the next chapter in Mark 12, he says this starting in verse 1. He gives this parable. And he began to speak to them in the parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get them from some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so many, and, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? Pay attention to what he says. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In most of the Gospels, this is the last parable that they recorded Jesus ever saying, and it's because this is the one that probably killed him. You need to, this is important for us to realize the kind of the timeline of events. He gives this parable, and within the week, he's dead. And it's because he's very, very clearly at this moment saying, I am the Messiah. I am the one who come. I am that stone that the builders rejected that has now become the cornerstone. He's hearkening back to Psalm 118 and making the claim. This is a side note, but there's no way that we can possibly understand the depth of what Jesus is saying without knowing the Old Testament. This is my pitch for the Old Testament. Jesus is not making metaphors. He's not saying arbitrary things. He is over and over and over again making allusion and claim to things that the Old Testament is saying that is saying that he is, in fact, the Messiah. He is the king. It is impossible for you to claim that Jesus never makes the claim of kingship, messiahship, and godship if you know the Old Testament. Jesus is making that claim. Jesus is saying, I am the one you've been waiting for. I am the stone that the builders rejected. And he says that you can hear the frustration in Jesus' voice, the sadness, the longing. He's looking at these people that were not unaware of what the Scripture said, but knew the Scripture back and forth. And he's looking at them saying, don't you see it? I'm him. I'm the one you're waiting for. I am the steadfast love of God poured out in flesh here to rescue you. I am that guy, but I know that you're going to reject me. He looks at them saying that you know that he's so just sad and frustrated. I am that guy. I am the one who's come to rescue. I am the one who has come to save, but I know you're going to throw me out. I know that you're going to reject me. I am that stone, and you're going to reject me. Jesus is very clearly making the claim that he is the future rescuer of Israel, that he is a future rescuer of all people. And from that, there's really two observations that I want to close with. The first is just a reiteration of, our, of the first point that I made, and that's that the steadfast love of God, the set of God, this never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love of God is most powerfully and perfectly expressed in the work of Jesus, the great rescuer. It is Jesus who saves. It is Jesus who rescues. I don't think I can say this clearly enough. There is nothing else in the world that can save you. There's no amount of money, no amount of stuff, no amount of comfort, no amount of things that you could possess, no person in this world, no president, no ruler, no law, no system of economics, no anything in this world that can save you. Nothing saves you but Jesus. Nothing can save you but Jesus. He is the steadfast love of God. He is the promise has said that God gave to his people over and over and over again. He is the gate the righteous shall enter. He is the stone that is the cornerstone. It is him and no one else. I can't say that clearly enough. There is nothing else in this world that can rescue you, and you need to be rescued. The swarm of bees surrounding you, the fire is coming. Jesus can save you and no one else. I don't think I can say that clearly enough. If I didn't say it clearly enough, I don't know what else to say. Okay? 
Jesus is the one who saves. He is steadfast love. He is the one who will never give up on you. He will never let you down. He will always keep his promises. He is the one who saves you. The last is this. The last observation is this, is that Jesus is easy to reject. See, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's an interesting imagery because these were not nobodies. These were not just me and you coming along and looking at the rock and saying, I don't know, that one looks good. These were builders. They knew what they were doing. See, the, the cornerstone or the capstone was the piece that kind of kept everything together. Kind of when they would build, like, especially arches and stuff like that, all the pressure would go into one stone. And so that middle stone had to be strong. It had to be the best stone that they had because if it cracked, the whole thing fell. And so they would go in, that would usually be the first rock that they would choose when they're going down to the quarry. They'd find, okay, let's find the cornerstone and then we'll build the rest of the structure. These people knew what they were doing. They knew how to recognize it and they tossed Jesus aside. Jesus is the least attractive rescuer in the world. Don't be deceived. He is the last choice you would probably make on your own. Money, wealth, power, success, beauty, all of those things seem more attractive. They all seem more attractive. Jesus is easy to reject, so don't be deceived. Don't toss aside Jesus the way the Pharisees, who should have known better, did. Don't toss him aside. Guys, you come to church every week. This is not a new message to you. Jesus is the one who saved. There's nothing else. The whole service is set up to make that point. There's nothing else in this world that can save you but Jesus. So don't reject him. Don't fall into the subtle idolatry of culture. Don't be shaped by the water in which you swim outside of these walls. But let the water of the gospel be the water in which you swim. Don't turn to other idols. And, and I, and I want to close by making this point. If you have not turned to Jesus, if this is the first time you're hearing this, if you have always looked to other things to save you, to rescue you, whether it's from your broken past, whether it's from abuse, whether it's from a divorced home, whether it's from mistakes that you've made, whatever it is, if you have not turned to Jesus, do it. Don't do anything else. There's nothing else that can save you. Your stuff won't save you. People won't save you. Your families won't save you. Your belief systems won't save you. The laws won't save you. Nothing else will save you. Only Jesus will save you. So do so. Let him save you. Let him save you. And guys, if you have done that before, don't fall to idols. Let Jesus be your constant redeemer. Let Jesus be your constant rescuer. He's easy to reject but he is the cornerstone. He is the one who saves. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I, I lift up this time to you, God, asking first and foremost, Lord, that you would rescue people in this room. God, that need to be rescued. Lord, who have found themselves in the fire and the thorns, Lord. Who have found themselves in the midst of the swarm of bees, Lord. Who have found themselves in the midst and overrun by oppression and evil, Lord. I pray that you would rescue them. God, that they would turn to you and see you as the only one who can truly save. And Lord, I pray for those of us who have done that, God. 
Lord, that we would not be deceived by the subtle idolatry of this world. Lord, that we would not fall into the trap of aiming our hearts, aiming our great affection and our service and our worship at anything other than you. God, because it is you and you alone who saves. It is you and you alone who is worthy. God, we thank you for that, Lord. We pray that in your name. Amen.